The title for this morning's talk is Trying to Catch the World. It is a deliberately perplexing title. And what makes it, I think, perplexing, equivocal, is that the verb to catch has two different meanings. It means two different things. It can mean to capture, to imprison, to take possession of the world in this case, on the one hand. On the other hand, to catch means to understand. It's a peculiar thing of our language. And yet, it's not accidental. In fact, look at a whole list of synonyms of to catch. And they do the same thing. To apprehend means both understanding and taking prisoner. To get, get it? To grasp, to seize. All these terms mean both to understand mentally and to catch physically, to capture physically. What is this telling us? It is telling us that in our culture, in our language, the act of understanding entails entails presupposes plucking items out of the world context. And what does this plucking out involve? And are there other ways of understanding the world? That's the topic of today's talk. Let me take this questions one at a time. Let's, let's, first, let's examine how is it that we try to catch the world. Just wait for a moment until, please come in comfortably, no problem. do the catching. So let us look at the ways in which we extract, pluck out, cull items from the world. Items that once we pull out, we consider them as separately. First of all, we are very skillful at that. Well, You know, years ago I used to read the newspapers. I stopped doing that. 
and even local newspapers. And Sunday supplements used to have a, a section there, recreational for entertainment section. You know, puzzle, crossword puzzles, and uh, and, uh, and some little comic here and there. And also, there used to be, I don't know whether it's done still today, say a landscape. And you were challenged to look at the landscape and pluck out from it, say, five faces. Maybe the first one or second one was easy, the others got a little more difficult, or five pigs or cats or whatever. And by golly, we were very good at that, I thought. And then, of course, psychotherapies have exploited this to the hill. Some of you may be familiar with the so-called Rorschach test, a test in which the person is presented with a set of ink blots, it's just ink blots. But boy, the things that people pluck out of those simple ink blots. Because, of course, those are the projections of our mind. Language plays a crucial role in this isolating items from the world. In fact, naming things becomes the scalpel that allows us to dissect the world. If not, allows us to fabricating items that populate it. The Buddha has made this quite clear as a very extensive teaching throughout the scriptures on the significance of name and form. Nama Rupa in the language of the Buddha in Pali. Nama Rupa as the basic way how we identify items in the world. Name and form. He illustrates somewhere along the scriptures this by saying that we use the word chariot, because nowadays we'd say automobile or whatever. <laughs> the chariot was the automobile of the times. We use the word chariot to create an entity out of just an assembly, assemblage of part. And thus, we take the word chariot he said, and we reify it, we thingify it, we create a thing out of the word. In fact, I, a moment ago I realized that this morning, during my instruction about the sit, I did more or less the same thing because I I talked about the ground from where sensations emerge. 
Sure, we communicate with language, and the moment I turn into language, I create an entity. But it's clearly a fabricated entity, the ground from where sensations emerge. You know, I'm already separating the ground from the space above. It's a way we use language as a shortcut to communication, sure. And if, and I'm not saying not to use language, of course. <laughs> I'm not saying not to pluck things out of the world, of course. I'm not saying that if you see a chariot, don't think of it as a chariot. Simply do not become imprisoned on that as the only way to connect with the world. Thingification, create things out of what we see and out of our experience, is something extra, something we add to the world. It's also helpful, no problem. Of course, it is helpful. We, we could speak if we didn't do that. But when we really want to go back and connect with the world truly and in a fundamental, basic way, it gets in our way. Of course, it's not just language. It's all the factors in our mind that do that. As the Buddha explicitly noted, too, in the scriptures. Take, for instance, the case of visual perception. The following story that I'll share with you, the story of a man called Virgil, truly dramatizes how visual perception is involved in this itemization of life. Virgil was a 50-year-old man who had been virtually blind since childhood because of very thick cataracts that he developed at a few months old, I think. Maybe a few years old, I Sorry, I can't remember the fact. At this, uh, when he was 50, he established a relationship with a girlfriend called Amy. And Amy told him, but look, there's no reason why you have to continue to be blind. Nowadays, you can be operated, and this can be solved. And Virgil went along. Amy's doctor, the doctor Amy recommended remove the cataracts. And by golly, he could finally see after almost 50 years. And here's what Oliver Sacks, Virgil's neurologist, says of the aftermath of the operation. What would vision be like in such a person? 
Would it be normal from the moment vision was restored? This is what, my, my, what one might think at first. This is a commonsensical notion. The eyes will be open, the scale will fall from them, and in the words of the New Testament, the blind man will receive sight. But could it be that simple? Was not experience necessary to see? Did one not have to learn to see? Virgin told me later that in this first moment after the operation, he had no idea what he was seeing. There was light, there was movement, there was color, all mixed up, all meaningless, a blur. Then out of the blur came a voice and said, well, then, and only then, Virgil said, did he finally realize that this chaos of light and shadow was a face? And indeed, it was a face of his surgeon. The rest of us, born sighted, can scarcely imagine such confusion. For we, born with a full complement of senses and correlating these, one with another, create a sight world from the start, a world of visual objects and concepts and meaning. We are not given the world. We make our world through incessant experience, categorization, memory, reconnection. But when Virgil opened his eye after being blind, for 45 years. Okay, so operation was at five. I mean, the, he was blind at five. I forgot that. After being blind for 45 years, having had more than an infant's visual experience and this long forgotten, there were no visual memories to support a perception. There was no world of experience and meaning awaiting him. He saw, but what he saw had no coherence. His retina and optic nerve were active, transmitting impulses, but his brain could make no sense of them. He was, as neurologists say, agnostic. One thing Virgil could recognize quite well were letters. As a child in school, he had learned to recognize them by touch. He was given cut out of letters. He touched them, followed them. Ah, yes, A. Ah, yes, B. And so when he regained sight, these shapes were familiar to him. He could easily recognize them. But he had difficult recognizing that a face was a face or a cat was a cat. He saw features, but he could not put them together the usual way. Here goes Oliver Sacks on. Oh. 
As Virgil explored the rooms of his house, investigating, so to speak, the visual construction of the world, I was reminded of an infant moving his hand to and fro before his eyes, waggling his head, turning this way and that way. And that in his primal construction, turning this way and that in his primal construction of the world. Most of us have no sense of the immensity of this construction, for we perform it seamlessly and consciously thousands of times every day at a glance. In the end, just to make this story not that long, in the end, Virgil's restoration of vision misfired. It became a curse for him. As Oliver Sacks says, Virgil was thrust into a battle he could neither renounce nor win. Then says uh, Oliver Sacks in the closing segment here. But then, paradoxically, a release was given in the form of a second and now final blindness. A blindness that he received as a gift. Now, at last, Virgil is allowed to not see, allowed to escape from the glaring, confusing world of sight and space, and to return to his own true being, the intimate, concentrated world of the other sense senses that had been his home for almost 50 years. I was quite uh, impacted by this story. But it sounds so very true. And in fact, that Virgil's case is not unique. There are many, many cases in the medical literature, and, and Oliver Sacks reviews some of them as well, in which um, the congenitally blind, when they have the sights restored, uh, cannot put things together. I share this story with you to make very clear what I mean by plucking items out of the world. We pluck them out as separate objects. They're not necessarily separate objects. But we train ourselves to do that. And this separation is a result of our training, not the natural order of things. Natural order of things, uh, all the experiences are, are very much part of, of a wholeness.
And yet, before we know it, as infants, and, and repeatedly as we grow up, we end up imparting reality to our constructions. We do need them to talk to each other, to compare things, to recognize people, you know. Oh, absolutely, we, we need them. But the problem is that we believe them as the final truth of things. And now, which is the centerpiece of our construction of the world? Which is the key item that we pluck out of the world and stands above all others. Think of it. Just, just to yourself, make a guess. Yeah. It's our own separate self. Yeah. Boy, we believe in that. It's not that we are not real, of course, but we are not separate. I mentioned earlier that the Buddha illustrated the way we create items by using language, by pointing out to the word chariot. The actual passage from the scriptures in which he does so is a dialogue between a nun, Vajira is her name, and the devil, who is called Mara in the Buddhist tradition. The dialogue starts when Mara encourages Vajira to see herself as a separate being. And Vajira responds. recognizes Mara immediately, of course, as it happens in these cases. Yeah, that's the devil who's telling me that, trying to mislead me. And she responds, why now do you assume, assume a being? Mara, is that your speculative view? This is a heap of sheer formations. Here, no being is found. Just as with an assemblage of parts, the word chariot is used, so when the aggregates exist, there is the convention of a being. Let me take a moment to talk about what <coughs> is meant in the Buddhist tradition by the aggregates. The aggregates are the parts of ourselves. Namely, this, each one of us is supposed to be made up of five aggregates. Form, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, and consciousness. It doesn't matter how we divide them that, because they're not, they're not really separate anyway, the aggregates. In fact, the Buddha used to come to his, uh, sometimes to give a talk, like I am, with um, a bunch of seeds. 
I've done that sometime in one, in one talk. I didn't want to repeat that. But anyway, it takes seeds and it makes five little piles of seeds. This, uh, the five aggregates making one person. A little further out, he takes his seeds and make other five little piles, another person. The whole point of this metaphor is that there's nothing intrinsically separate about the seeds. You know, they're simply in different piles. But we give coherence to those piles as if there was a being. That's what Mara was trying to persuade Majira to do. Poppycock. <laughs> Poppy seeds. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I believe our friend Virgil would have had little trouble to understand this, since he, in fact, came to know firsthand the arbitrary nature of our constructions. So, how do we go about deconstructing, deconstructing the world we have constructed? How do we go about deconstructing the world that we got ourselves trapped into? Because that's really the point. The point is not to deny the, the existence of apparently separate persons, but actually not to be trapped into believing that, as Mara was trying to get Vajira to do. Well, the, the recipe of the Buddha is quite clear and has to do, of course, with the practice of meditation. And here's a passage from the scriptures again. Monks, he says, the Tathagata, that means the Buddha, it's a way of saying the Buddha, the Tathagata, a Tathagata, any Buddha, of course, does not construe an object as a scene apart from sight. No, there's a sight, but it doesn't make a subject out of what we see, an object. He does not construe of an ansi. He does not construe of a thing worth seeing. He does not construe about a seer. I mean, that's really getting the, to the naked, bare basis of what we know. We know what we see, but he says, don't f fabricate, don't build anything. That's it. The, the bricks, are, each thing that we see could be seen as a brick. Don't make a house out of that brick. Don't make a, a being out of a pile of seeds. Now, 
And in, in the scriptures, he goes through this process again, do not construe, not uh, fabricate anything through seeing, he said, then through hearing, through sensing, or through cognizing. And so, the practice of meditation offers us a, a little window through which we can experience a world free of constructions. Surely, daily life constructions are inevitable all the time, absolutely. We manage the best we can. We even try to manage, imagine who Obama is, or Michelle is, whatever, you know. But, while practicing, we're encouraged to shed our habitual responses to the experience of life. To stop plucking out items from the world in order to use them for our constructions. No more of that. That is, no more of that compulsion, which still will do it, but not be compelled to do it. To be able to have a little window where we can see beyond that. We encourage to redirect our awareness, not to the constructions, but to the rawness of our experience, to the very basis, the bare essence of what we experience. The sensations that arise remain for a while and dissolve away. Nothing to retain there. Nothing to construct with that. The only thing that's left is, what do we call it? The space, the emptiness, the nothingness, where all this happens. Even the ground I gave to that space, it's uh, unnecessary. We begin to drop the compulsion of endowing, endowing, endowing thingness to whatever we perceive. Certainly, to whatever we perceive when you look at the mirror. Just a bunch of organs there, reflected by the mirror. Features reflected by the mirror. Even a face, if you wish. It doesn't matter that you call it a face, you call it just my face, but, but just realize that you're just calling it, that's all. We, we come across flashes of insight that allow us to see directly into the emptiness of these things. We stop trying to catch the world because we realize there is nothing to be caught. And yes, when we need to do that, when we need to 
describe things in terms of items. Of course, we do that. But, but you, we stop before fully believing that this is the final reality of things. And so, by this process, our mental space, habitually crammed with an inventory, checklist of what we want, what we don't want, or whatever, what we have to do tomorrow, yesterday, whatever, can discover the possibility of becoming empty, becoming vacant. Having said that this is where the practice can take us, doesn't mean that that's the only way. Of course. That's not my claim in any way, and I doubt it'd be the claim of the Buddha. Of course not. It was a pragmatic. Some time ago, Raquel gave me a little quote from George Braque, the French painter, and I think it fits here very well. Braque with uh, Picasso, who was one of the two founders of Cubism last century, both French. Here's what he said at one time. Brack and Picasso are both dead now, yes. I no longer believe in anything. Objects don't exist for me except insofar as a rapport, a relationship, that is, exists between them or between them and myself. When one attains this harmony, we, one reaches a sort of intellectual non-existence, what I can only describe as a state of peace, which makes everything possible and right. Life then becomes a revelation. That is true poetry. Thank you. Thank you to Raquel for pointing this out. Poetry, yes. Poetry, of course, can also take us there because it challenges so beautifully the structures of language. And in doing so, it takes us out of the habitual rut. And then, of course, there's other dimensions of human communication, which are beyond the verbal. There is, of course, in, in Interpersonal communication, the body language. Sure, but that's, a, that's important. But it doesn't cover everything. Just, just a few days ago, one of our daughters 
called up and uh, said, oh, nothing, I just wanted to call. It was an extraordinary communication for me because the quality of her voice, the tenor of her voice. I was so deeply touched. She didn't say anything. In fact, she said nothing. She said nothing. It's an idiom in, uh, in Argentina. It's, uh, nothing means a lot of things. But she didn't mean nothing in the Buddhist sense, but I took it in the Buddhist sense because it, it works. But it was a tone of her voice that transformed me. It's so beautiful. But then, you don't even need, you don't need the body, you don't need the tone of voice. When we are together without moving our body in silence, we indeed communicate. Oh, wow. We generally filter that out because it's not habitual. But when we feel it, It's, it's a, a silent language, if you wish, a communi silent communication that's meant to integrate, not to dissect. The Zen, Zen scriptures tell the story of one time when the Buddha was to give a talk to the assembly of his disciples. Like, you know, like I'm doing today. But instead of giving a talk, as I'm doing, as he often did, he simply went up to the podium and held up a flower. Nothing particular nothing symbolic about the flower. It was an ordinary flower. What mattered was the gesture and the context. All his disciples remained silent. But one, called Mahakasha, smiled. brought into a smile. So the Buddha walked to Mahasakasha and gave him the flower. And shortly afterwards, he left. Having transmitted really to his disciples a message that defies description. A message that, if I try to describe it, which ruins it, of course, is that there is message in the silence. Well, it doesn't fully ruin it, but it, it explains it somehow. It's experience of being there. Transmission, communication, is not limited to words. It's clear. It needs to be clear. In fact, as in this case, it is enhanced 
by the absence of word. There was a Buddha, totally present for his audience. And there was Mahakasho, recognizing that and smiling. And there was a portion of the world, the flower, mediating that meeting, mediating that recognition of each other, and making the world whole again. Making it whole again in the space of silence. So let us here now give ourselves a chance to make the world whole again by sitting together in silence for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.